Hi, this is Charlotte Pence, daughter of Vice President Mike Pence and author of Where You Go, Life Lessons from My Father. You're listening to On Faith's Edge with Joe Taylor. So I believe the Bible actually compels Christians to be scientists. And the more we understand it, the more we stand in awe of God. Thank you, Charlotte Pence, for the introduction. Charlotte and I had a great conversation back on episode 116. Her and I talked about her father, Vice President Mike Pence. Charlotte wrote a book called Where You Go, Life Lessons from My Father. And we talk a lot about growing up with her father, what it's like to be the daughter of a vice presidential nominee, and how her father laid a solid foundation of faith. And her faith is strong. You can hear our whole conversation at onfaithsedge.com slash 116. That's onfaithsedge.com slash 116. Welcome to the 118th episode of On Faith's Edge. My name is Joe Taylor, recovering atheist and your servant in Jesus Christ. This is your place to hear conversations about God and living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. I am so excited about today's conversation with Dr. Andy Daniel. I love conversations like this one that we have today. They inspire me to understand my faith more deeply. And I believe our talk will force you to think about your faith more deeply as well. In his book, Clear Vision, How the Bible Teaches Us to View the World, Andy explains the foundation and application of a biblical worldview. He dismantles misconceptions about the Bible and its authority and gives Christians the tools to develop their thinking on politics, economics, science, and various other social challenges. In our conversation, we talk about deciphering the truth from false prophecies, how to speak, think, and communicate about the Bible. When is the Bible to be taken literally? We have a great conversation about the connection between Christianity, science, and scientific methods. We ask, is it acceptable for us to play God? We even, we even discuss the problem of slavery in the Bible, capitalism, communism, and the government's responsibility to take care of its citizens. Andy, how does the Bible teach us to view the world? The, the Bible has a way God laid out to Moses in the uh, chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, he laid out to Moses, this is how you'll know if religious literature is true or not. And it's basically what um, we call the falsification method today. So God says, uh, religious prophets will make predictions and explanations. And God says, if those turn out to be true, then they're my spokesman. And if they don't, he says, literally ignore them. You don't have to fear those people. Then the Bible teaches us to expand on that method as one of the ways that we view the world. And so Christians are actually supposed to be the most logical, rational people around. Uh, we're supposed to be looking at the world through a lens of, if it works, keep it. If it doesn't work, discard it. And, and Jesus revalidated this when he says, beware of the false prophets, beware of the false spokesmen. When people say something and their actions don't match their words or their predictions don't match their explanations, then you need to steer away from those people. The Christian community certainly is not at a shortage of people making predictions, especially in certain sects of Christianity. Not making any judgment here, but uh, certain sects of Christianity certainly is that that is their thing to tell us when the next the next bad things about to happen, or the next coming, or the next disaster, or the whatever it might be, end of the world dates. We hear that a lot. Some of those predictions come from pseudo mainstream Christian personalities. It's very interesting. 
how do we as your normal everyday Christians decipher the the truth from the falsehoods? The Bible sets itself up so that it can be validated with the predictions and explanations that are in it. All of the prophecies in the Old Testament that come true make us say this has to be an inspired book. But the Bible actually today doesn't tell us that we should continue to make those <laughs> predictions and explanations. And I think you're right. It becomes too tempting for religious leaders to say, I found a secret code in the Bible that tells us when the word Jesus just as simply and explicitly as he could said, you will not know the end times. It will catch you off guard. And Peter says in one of his letters, because we know that the world will one day end in fire, what do we need to worry about? When it's going to end or exactly who's going to be? There? No, we need to worry about how we live today. And so just if you just take a couple of simple, straightforward clips from the Bible, one out of the mouth of Jesus and one off the pen of Peter, you say, we shouldn't be worried today about exactly how the world's going to end or when. We should be worrying about the living witness we are for Christ until the world ends. As a blanket statement, as a general statement, frankly, just take all that junk and shuck it. If somebody made a prediction five years ago and that didn't prediction come tr- and that prediction didn't come true, the Bible clearly says, Set that guy aside. Move man. on. He's not, he's, he doesn't speak. He doesn't speak for me. Correct. So that is a very clear directive from the Bible. Your, your book is titled Clear Vision, How the Bible Teaches Us to View the World. There's a couple different subjects I'd like to talk about. I want to talk about the Bible, capitalism, and, and how capitalism fits into biblical principles, how science and Christianity do not oppose each other. So let's let's talk with the Bible. How do we how do we speak, think, and communicate clearly about the Bible? As a minister, uh, one of the things that I'm always going to say is when we when we look at the Bible, we have to make sure we understand who's speaking, to whom they're speaking, and what the context is about what they're speaking. And so, there are portions of the Bible that are meant to be taken literally. Genesis through Nehemiah, the Gospels and Acts, those are to be taken literally. But we also have to understand there's poetic language in the Bible. The Psalms are really a song book. Um, so we, you have to look at the right context of the Bible to, to understand it. Um, and again, the, the, God said, I know people will want to know. People will always claim to be my spokesman and people will want to know. And so there's really two ways God validates that the Bible is his. One, if you were living in the time, there were miracles. So if you see Moses part the Red Sea or you see Jesus heal a withered hand, you're pretty certain. He's doing something special. Now, for you and I today, that doesn't mean as much. And, and you can challenge my faith on that. But I don't think it's a matter of faith. If I didn't see the miracle, it's hard for me. But when I read the prophecies of Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and I see these things being fulfilled on a world stage one after the other, exactly as the Bible predicted. When I read God's explanations of how the natural world works, that the earth is round and hangs on nothing in space, which was an insane idea when it was written in the book of Job, um, that when the Bible explains how the hydrological water cycle works, that somehow the oceans evaporate up and pour out as rain on the land and then run back into the oceans and the rivers, insane ideas. And yet, when you read that in today's world, you go, 3,000 years ago for somebody to write those things, this had to be an inspired book. And that's exactly what God says. I will provide predictions and explanations, and you will be able to see. There will be other religious spokesmen and prophets and writings 
they'll make predictions and explanations and they'll turn out to be false. And so to me, I came to faith from a very rational standpoint. That was not an emotional one-time conversion too. for me. I did too, yeah. It was a very rational, kind of that Lee Strobel, I had to examine the facts. Uh, I'm actually trained. Uh, my, my initial formal training is I have a PhD in economics. And I worked in the corporate world as an analytical consultant for about 20 years. And so I'm very accustomed to looking at the hard data and segregating truth from error. And as I did that with religious literature, I realized the Bible rises above. And so once I was convinced that that had to be an inspired book, I started to say, how does it teach me to view the world? And God lays out a framework. This is how the world works. This is what human nature looks like. This is what humans are for. And if you understand why God created us and what God lists out as the pitfalls of our nature, now all of a sudden picking philosophies, economic styles, political styles, uh, it's really straightforward. It really is. The Bible does really provide a clear vision for how we uh, set those things in life. How do we decipher those places in the Bible that are directive as written and to be taken literally and those places that are you have to think about the context of the time you have to think about the conversation between the two cultures or the cult the conversations of the cultures uh, you have to think about um, what god said seven chapters back <laughs> you know uh, how does the layperson somebody that's that's not a PhD. Uh, how do that? How does that person decipher those those parts of the Bible? Slavery is a good example. Many people who oppose Christianity use slavery as an example. That hey, slavery is accepted throughout the Bible. God even teaches us how to treat our slaves. Which, by the way, He teaches us to treat our slaves uh, like human beings. Um, uh, but it's still a. It's it's still not a clear condemnation of slavery. So how do we, how do we do that? How, you know, I, I use slavery as an example because it's used a lot, uh, but how do we decipher those places in the Bible that are literal and those places that need kind of, um, that are more nuanced? Great question. And, and, the, and the book tries to provide some structure. The book, the clear vision book tries to provide some framework to help us understand exactly those things. Again, some of the books are written to be literal history, and they're presented as such. Uh, and again, Genesis through Nehemiah in the Old Testament are literal history. The book of Acts is the literal historical account of the apostles setting up the early Christian church after Christ's uh, ascension. And so we are to take the things in those books as literal historical events. Um, again, the, the book of Psalms is written to be a songbook or poems. And so we expect to see language in there that's more symbolic. Revelation, we expect to see language in Isaiah 65 and 6. We expect to see languages. But again, it's because the, the, the prophets will say, Isaiah would say, or John would say, and then I saw a vision and it was like, and then you can tell, okay, he's describing something, right? When Daniel says, and I saw one like a son of man to whom God gave this eternal kingdom after he had wiped out all the earthly kingdoms. Well, we're not exactly sure, but we know Daniel's going, I can't really describe this. So I'm going to say it was obviously God 
who was getting this eternal key, but he looked like a son of man. He looked like a human. And so you know when they start to say, and it was like that now they're talking symbolically. And then things like the Proverbs. Uh, Solomon writes, here's why I'm writing the Proverbs, so that those who fear God can kind of understand how humans react and some of the pitfalls of humans. So Solomon doesn't say, thus said the Lord, you must follow all these Proverbs. Solomon simply says, I'm trying to give you some, some wise sayings, some good direction. And so when we read the Ten Commandments, it's thus saith the Lord. When we read Proverbs, it's, no, this is just good advice you would get riding down the road with your grandfather. And so that's the way we take the Proverbs as opposed to the way we would say take the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount. We know that Jesus spoke in parables. And so we have to be careful when we read a parable not to read too much into the parable. So you're looking for the general moral of the story when you read a parable and not specifically, okay, so Jesus said when the farmer sows wheat in the parable of the sower that some of it falls on hard ground and some of it comes up a little bit and some of it will produce 10 or, or uh, 100 fold. So that means 25% of the people, no, 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 it's, you can't divide <laughs> it up. So yeah, that's when right. you can over take the Bible over literally. All Jesus is saying is some people will hear the message and respond initially on an emotional level, but it never attaches. For some, they'll ignore the message. And for others, they'll actually become fruitful Christians and bear fruit. You can't. So I, I think once you just have a few general guidelines, you can actually pick the Bible up and go, oh, yes, I see. The Proverbs and the Psalms, that's more suggestions and poetic language. The parables are to be taken, the general moral of the story, but things like Acts are to be read as literal history. How do we use the Bible today in 2018 to live our lives. Let's, let's use a couple examples here. Does the Bible speak about capitalism? Does the Judeo-Christian ethic speak about capitalism? Left or right, we want to use the Bible to support our own political persuasions, all right? Yep. For example, uh, those on the, on the left side would typically say, hey, uh, the Bible teaches us that we have to take care of each other, that we are our brother's keeper, and we need to take tax dollars, increase taxes, and give it to these people over here because they're poor. That's what the Bible tells us to do. And then on the right, there are those that say, well, no, the, the Bible's not necessarily meant to speak to governments. It's meant to speak to individuals. Uh, so, yes, I as an individual am required by the Bible to take some of my money and this is simplistic, so grant me some grace, take some of my money and give it to that person over there who needs it, being good stewards of money, using good judgment, and so forth. What does the Bible say about this? In looking through a biblical lens, we need to understand one of the things that the Bible says about human nature. Uh, one, of, one of the foundations of communism is that people aren't bad in and of themselves. It's the environment they're in or the society or the, uh, the temptations that they're in that make them bad. The Bible says that's absolutely not true. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter seven, no, the evil that we do, it comes from our heart. It's not the things on the outside. His brother James in his letter in the New Testament says, God's not tempting you. Satan is the one tempting you. But even then you can't blame Satan because all Satan is doing is manipulating your own desires. 
bad stuff comes, and we don't want to necessarily believe that. But the prophet Jeremiah said, look, our hearts are so wicked, we can't even understand ourselves sometimes. It's not that we don't want to do good and that we're not capable of doing good often. It's that somewhere inside, there is, there is evil that comes from in each person. And so the entire foundation of communism says, if we could eliminate some of the bad influences, in this case from capitalism, we could literally create a utopia. Because people would all of a sudden be really good people. And the Bible says, no, they won't. Adam and Eve made a mistake in the garden. After the thousand-year reign of Christ in Revelation, as soon as Christ removes his ruling with an iron scepter, what happens? People go right back to being evil again. And so when Bible followers knew, as soon as we read the foundations of communism, this isn't going to work. The principle it's based on is unbiblical. And they're going to try to remove all of those evil things that make people act bad, and people are still going to act bad anyway. So you say, well, what about capitalism? It's kind of cutthroat and it's ruthless and so forth. I truly believe the biblical worldview says if you have to choose between capitalism and communism, you choose capitalism. Because capitalism at least acknowledges people are heavily influenced by their sort of by the the enticements or the, the, the different options that they have. But there's still some evil within them. And so capitalism is at least nice. And then if I continue to go to a car repair shop and the guy keeps ripping me off, instead of me constantly trying to figure out how does the government make this person quit being so mean to his customer, the customers just quit going there. And, and because sometimes you can't make a person that the Bible says the purpose of government is to restrain evil. And there are some philosophies, communism, one of them that says, no, no, no. The purpose of the government is to eliminate evil. And the Bible says you can't do that. And so any utopian philosophy, the Bible says is going to fail because they're trying to change the external environment to allow people's natural beauty and righteousness to shine. And the Bible says not going to happen. So what we need is a system of capitalism, let's say, that allows uh, different companies to play off each other, that has a strong government arm that restrains the, the capitalist, basically, from abusing the customers or, or the weak or the uneducated, et cetera. So the Bible wouldn't say, let's go with unfettered, laissez-faire capitalism. Why? Because people are evil. And powerful people with knowledge and money will start to take advantage of smaller people. And so we would say a capitalist marketplace is much better than a communist marketplace because it acknowledges what the Bible says about human nature. There always has to be this strong government, really a court system is what the Bible says. The purpose of the we, we need a strong court system that's unbiased, that can't be bought, that can't be bribed, uh, that can't be sort of ruled by political power. We need a strong court system to sort of constrain the evil that exists. Does that mean that the Bible does speak to part of the government's job is to oversee commerce, protect our water system, protect us from garbage dumping in the rivers and stuff like that? The government indeed has, has a role in those types of things. Yes, the, the government, and, and, and when, when God established the government, so the first institution God established to kind of organize society was the family. That's in Genesis, right? And that's still the primary institution to organize society. Then God, through Moses, established the government. 
And then, of course, in Acts, God established the New Testament church. So those are the three main pillars through which God organizes and kind of controls um, society. But consistently in the Old Testament through Moses, and then in Paul's writings in the New Testament, look, for example, to Romans chapter 13. Paul repeats the same biblical idea. The governments are there to restrain evil. Paul says up to and including even capital punishment. He uses the term, uh, you know, they yield the sword uh, through God's authority to do that. And so anything where the government is restraining one person being evil or harming another person. So, yeah, I believe that would include financial harm. That would include physical harm, uh, any type of fraud or manipulation. I believe the government does have a responsibility. God's view, the Bible's view of a government, they have a responsibility to constrain evil along all those dimensions. It's not just someone breaking in your house and kidnapping you, but it's someone taking advantage of you financially through some type of manipulation or through some type of a scheme. Um, so, yeah, the government's job is to restrain evil in society in every form. You cover a wide variety of subjects, the Bible, political parties, capitalism, communism that we just spoke about, science and medicine, church problems, and several other issues and challenges uh, of our faith. Uh, let's talk about science. Uh, I have a friend of mine who, is, uh, who was witnessing to his sister, and she stopped the conversation immediately and she said, you have to understand, I'm a scientist. And she's a scientist in the purest sense. Because she's a scientist, she felt that the Bible had no place in her worldview because she's a scientist. The Bible, it's really the genesis of modern science. Uh, for example, God tells us in Genesis that the world will work in a consistent manner. And after the flood, God repeats to Moses. I realize we just saw this worldwide cataclysm that destroyed everything. But by the way, nature's still going to work in a consistent manner. Night's going to follow day and the seasons are going to follow each other. The world works in a consistent manner. So he gives us this directive, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Those are Hebrew words that were translated into Latin and Greek and then English. This is how I would state it today. Use science to subdue the world and the resulting technology to have dominion over my creation. What does subdue mean subdue in this context? Subdue means to understand and then bring under control. That's essentially what, if you looked at the Hebrew word, mm -hmm. that's essentially what it would mean. To understand it so that you can bring it under control. What is science trying to do? Understand what causes tornadoes. Now, we can't bring them under control, but if we understand what causes them, we can at least alert people and reclaim some of our dominion that God gave us. Now, it is true when we sinned and we cursed the earth, this idea of how we would subdue and the degree to which we could have dominion over the earth was clearly impacted. Everything was impacted by that sin, and we understand that. But we still have the directive from God. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Check. I think we've done that. Continue to have, and these are ongoing processes, continue to subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth. And so God says the world will work in a consistent manner. Now go figure it out and use it to your advantage. God literally said to us, I need you to become scientist because you are my creation you're made in my image and that's why i'm a creator i'm a thinker i'm a rational being 
and I've set this um, earth in motion and I'm asking you to be stewards of it, to manage it, to take care of it. I own the warehouse, but I'm away. You manage it and take care of it for me. If I come back and you're like, I figured out a better way to organize the warehouse, to ship and to receive the logistics are improved, I'm going to be very happy. So subdue and have dominion over what I've given you. I know you, by the way, here's a hint. It's going to work in a very consistent manner. And so if you read books like uh, Rodney Stark, How the West Won, Dr. Stark does a really good job of explaining how, why was it Christians who hit on the idea of the scientific method? Because the Bible told them that the world would work in a consistent manner and every other culture just sort of assumed everything was chaotic, that there weren't beautiful mathematical equations that would underlie and explain why the world works the way it does. They thought when the gods fought, that's what caused thunder and lightning. And when somebody got uh, mad at her lover, that was what caused the winter to come on. And God says, no, 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 it's got nothing to do with the moods of the gods. It works consistently. Now go figure it out. So I believe the Bible actually compels Christians to be scientists. We have to understand. And the more we understand it, the more we stand in awe of God. Would it be appropriate to say that God has laid the foundation for us, explained the world to us, and said, okay, go make it better? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. This is, yes, this is essentially, it works consistently, and that's about all I'm going to tell you. He gives us hints over time. Uh, for example, there were uh, philosophers for thousands of years who said that the earth must be eternal. Nothing could have created the earth. Other philosophers said, no, there had to be a first mover or a prime mover that created the earth. The Bible very explicitly says, in the beginning, the universe had a beginning. Science fought that for a while only because they knew it would validate the Bible. And now science has said, no, the, the, the universe had a beginning. Science says, I mean, the Bible says that the universe is wearing out. It's going from more ordered to less ordered. It's going from usable energy to non-usable energy. Science now calls that the second law of thermodynamics. But the Bible laid it out there. This is how, so it had a beginning. It will have an end. As it goes, it's going from more ordered to less ordered, from usable energy to less usable energy. And science goes, check, had a beginning, check. That's what we call the second law of thermodynamics. When God made the world, the Bible says, God said that it's, it's done, it's complete, it's finished. That Hebrew word literally means done once, can't be added to, not to be repeated. That's what science calls the first law of thermodynamics. That what the matter and energy that exists we don't know how it got here because it violates the, the rules that govern our universe for it to be here. But what, here's what we know. We can't create more of it. We can't destroy what's here. We can change it from one form to another. That's Einstein's famous E equals MC squared. Mm -hmm. I can change matter to energy and vice versa, but I can't create nor destroy it. It's here and it's completed. And that's exactly what God said. So in a sense, the Bible said, here's the world. It works consistently. Go figure it out. Oh, yeah, by the way, it had a beginning. You can't create matter or destroy matter, but you can sure play with it in between. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Now, take the consistent rules I've applied and go figure out how to create it. A simple example of that is water itself. We can take water and we can boil it into steam. 
we can it, it, it may no longer be in that pot but it 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 still exists we didn't take anything away from it uh it's that matter what what was water still exists correct uh, if we can freeze it and it's no longer water it's now ice but that matter still exists we didn't take anything away and we didn't add anything correct it may have changed and we cannot we cannot add or take away from anything that exists in this world. And that was the implication of the Bible. So the Bible implies in Genesis, we can't add or take away, and that life is not a natural occurrence, that life was a once created event as well. And as much as scientists have tried in the last 150 years, we have absolutely no idea how to create life. And the Bible would suggest that's because it doesn't naturally occur. In Clear Vision, you seem to have taken all these complex ideas that, frankly, are only complex because we made them complex, or only complex because we're, we confused the issue, we muddied the water, we added so many gray areas, and you give us a, a foundation to clearly communicate these biblical principles and why Christianity is the right path in, in such a way that Although we're not PhDs, Andy, we can, we can take these complicated concepts and clearly communicate them to each other. That's, that's the hope of the book. That's the purpose of the book, yes, is that we can do uh, exactly that. And, and you're right. I think sometimes we, we complicate from both sides. I think sometimes the scientists complicate because if you ask them a challenging question, the best thing to do is start using language that you don't really understand so that you have to sort of shut down. And unfortunately, I think sometimes the theologians do the same thing. They want to make the Bible some difficult to understand book so that you, quote unquote, need them to help you navigate it. And I'm going, yeah, but if you break it down to its simplest components, Mr. Scientist, can you create something for me? No, I can't. First off, thermodynamics disallows that. Can you create life from the matter that exists? No, I can't. The law of biogenesis denies me the ability to do that. Can you turn a bacteria into a moth? No, I can only turn bacteria into bacteria. I can watch it adapt and change over time into bacteria that might be antibiotic resistant, for example. But I've never been able to turn a bacteria into anything but bacteria or fruit fly anything but a fruit fly. Okay, great, because that's essentially what the Bible says. You can't create new stuff. You can't bring stuff to life and you can't change one kind to another as the Bible calls it. Everything else, Mr. Scientist, go do because that's biblical for you to do that. Now, if you start to argue with the scientists about changing bacteria into a fruit fly, they're going to try to take you down a rabbit hole of these big complicated words to shut your argument down. But it's really simple. Can science create matter? Can science create life? Can science turn bacteria into anything other than bacteria? And the answer is no. Many things that come from science are labeled as heresy. Where does the Christian world have it wrong when it comes to science? I think part of the answer is we've let the scientists to some degree dictate the conversation. And so I think a lot of Christians are afraid if we make genetically modified foods or if we put artificial heart valves and so that we're somehow, quote unquote, playing God. We are supposed to, in that sense of the term, play God. We were made in his image to manage his creation. So if you say to me, 
what do you think about modern medicine? I say, I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's a God thing. I truly do. We're supposed to figure out how to create artificial valves that we can put in someone's heart. That's having dominion over creation. That's being in control, taking leadership, taking charge of using it to the advantage of humans. That's what we're supposed to do. But yeah, I think sometimes you go, wait a minute, they're splicing genes to make this wheat that can grow in drought and this corn that's not affected by pests. We shouldn't do that. We're playing God. No, we should do that because we can feed about 40 million people in India if we do that. There's nothing wrong with us splicing genes. Subdue them and have dominion over. But, yes, sometimes I think we let the scientists dictate that, no, the Bible doesn't allow you to do science. So all this stuff science is coming up with. I heard an atheist once say to me, well, I guess you don't use antibiotics. And I said, of course I use antibiotics. Because God is the one who told scientists to create things like antibodies. So I think the honest answer to your question is we've let science dictate the terms of the debate. Now, if you say to me, what about stem cell research? I would say adult stem cell research is fine. Infant stem cell research is not. Because to create an embryo, simply to kill it, to use its stem cells, to me, is completely unbiblical because that embryo was made in God's image for God's glory. So there, so having a biblical worldview will draw lines sometime. We, we can breed animals. We can clone Dolly the sheep all we want. And I thought that was a neat thing when I read about that years and years ago. We don't need to be cloning humans. So there are limits the Bible, I believe, would put on science. Because man was made in God's image, not, not sheep. a sheep. Exactly. Only man has a soul. Only man is made in God's image. Exactly. But what about the argument that says, yes, but what if that purpose of the end of that embryo was to contribute to stem cell research? What if God did create that embryo to further stem cell research? And that goes back, I think, to the argument about um, and, and modern science gets very close to that modern ethics gets very close to that and a lot of modern philosophies get very close to that in a lot of ways that there is still somehow a difference in people and the bible has consistently said from the beginning no there is no difference in people Um, everybody is made for god's glory and on the measures that matter to god we're all the same and so god would not allow you to harvest my kidney or both my kidneys for the benefit of the king or the president or the congressman because, well, maybe God made me to have my kidney harvested. No, 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 no. That, that to me uh, aggressively crosses a line that says really the king or the president or the senator is more important than you. And so maybe you were actually just made to die for those other people. And I believe that's a completely unbiblical argument. Let's take something as simple as the Great Commission. That embryo, because of Jesus' great commission to go forth and make, make disciples, that embryo has to have an opportunity to do that. And if we stop that path, it's unbiblical. It's Anything unbiblical. that stops that path is unbiblical. Giving your kidney does not stop that path. Taking a, taking a stem cell from an umbilical cord does not stop that path. Killing a baby for any reason stops that path stops that path is that accurate it it is accurate it is accurate and 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 again the bible 
Now, a lot of Christians today are opposed to the death penalty because it doesn't appear to be used in a very uh, fair way. Let's put it that way. But the Bible actually says the death penalty is allowed. It's biblical. The government can yield the sword. But that's only after a person has made a decision. I know this is the law. I know this is the repercussion of violating the law. And I choose to violate that law. And then the Bible says, yes, if you need to, you can then execute that person. But you simply cannot. We do not have the authority to kill another human being on the assumption that, well, maybe it was God's purpose that I kill them without their consent and do good things with the body parts that I harvest from that. Right. I mean, that's, that's about as morbid and, <laughs> and grotesque as it gets. On the death penalty, I, I agree with you that, that I think the Bible allows, biblical principles allow for the death penalty, but we better make darn sure that we're applying it appropriately. And, and I'm afraid we're not. And I think Barry Sheck, if you're familiar with Barry Sheck, he, he has a thing, I believe it's called the DNA Project, where he has gone and proven dozens, and maybe hundreds at this point, of convicted killers— the DNA evidence shows conclusively that they were not the killer. And so, yeah, Christians would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just because we are allowed, the government is allowed, doesn't mean the government should use it if they're not using it in a fair sense. Absolutely. There's two subjects I'd like to talk specifically about and see where, the, where you feel where the Bible lands on these two subjects. The idea of slavery. The, when we talk about slavery in the Bible, we have to look at how it's specifically defined. And so slavery or indentured servanthood in the Bible takes different forms. One form, of course, is just prisoners of war who have been captured. We simply cannot turn them loose, or they're going to go back and fight for the enemy again and try to kill our families. And so prisoners of war are, in a sense, slaves, and that they do not have freedom, and any of their labor that is used generally goes to my benefit and not theirs. There are uh, what we sort of call indentured servants in the Bible, which means I uh, owe you money. I owe you something, but I don't have money. And so in the day, today's world, what we would say is I would borrow the money from a bank, perhaps. Now I'm a quote unquote slave to the bank. And that when I work, a portion of what I work for gets debited right out of my account and goes to the bank. But in, in say, in the, the days of Moses, that wasn't an option. And so what I had to do is go work for you for a period of time to pay that off. A lot of folks don't know, but when he was young, Abraham Lincoln actually ended up in a situation like that, which I think drove in part his disgust of his father owed someone. I think his father had borrowed something from another farmer, tore the thing up, couldn't pay it back. So the farmer said, send me your son and I'll get the value out of him. And so for a period of his life, Abraham Lincoln was a quote unquote slave to another person who worked him to get what his father owed him. And so the Bible says, yeah, yeah, those, those situations will occur. And when, you, when, when they occur, this is how you treat that person. And, and the person may ultimately decide they'd rather stay in your employment. Once they have paid off their debt to you, they may stay in your employment or so forth. Or the prisoners of wars may. But here's what the Bible also very clearly says. Paul wrote a couple of letters to a young man named Timothy. And in one of those letters, Paul says, here's the kind of things uh, that are bad. Here's the people who won't inherit the kingdom. And he talks about people that murder and people that rape and people that, and one of the things is, and if you look at the word, it says enslavers is generally how it's translated in English, enslavers. And that literally means the slave traders who aren't taking prisoners of war and they're not doing indentured servants. They are literally capturing people against their will who owe no one nothing 
and selling them into the slave trade. And Paul goes, those people are going to hell with the murderers and with the rapists. And so, and it was a verse that was used uh, by, the, by the Christian abolitionists in the 17 and 1800s in, in both England and America. It was a verse that was used consistently to say, look, there may be times when we take a person's freedom away and make them work prisoners, prisoners of war, indentured servants. Uh, you know, we may garnish a father's wage who won't pay his child support. But the Bible is very clear. What we cannot support is an institution where one person kidnaps and then slave trades another human being. And so it, it becomes almost a definitional issue. The type of slavery that existed in Europe and in America, in the Caribbean and in South America, was unbiblical from start to finish because it was done by slave traders and they were literally trading human souls which is clearly against the bible so the bible's very clear that the type of slavery that we understand today as slavery is clearly prohibited paul mentions it with murder and rape i mean it, it's 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 one of the biggies absolutely and so it really we really need different terms for it we need terms like prisoner of war or indentured servanthood versus slavery because yes slavery is why haven't the translators done that i mean if it's if it's really if it's as simple as that why haven't the translators done that just say hey listen this they weren't talking about slavery in the way we understand slavery we're translating a bible in the 20th and 21st century now why haven't the translators done that there are a few translations which take those old Hebrew and Greek words and, and instead of translating them slavery, translate them as servant or indentured servant. There are a few who have started to do that. The problem with Bible translation is they tend to be very consistent with previous texts. Not saying that that's the way they should be, but that's the way that, that it is. Uh, and they tend to be very consistent with previous texts. And so if that's the way... It was done in the Geneva Bible in the 1500s and the King James Bible in the 1600s. We sort of carry that forward. But I agree with you. It, it really creates a lot of confusion, I think. Where do taxes play a role? What is the biblical role? Less taxes, more taxes. What are our taxes supposed to be used for? What are we personally responsible for? How does the idea of taxation fit uh, into our culture today from a biblical per- perspective? And there, there's some things in the Bible, where we have to sort of take the framework the Bible provides and extend it out to understand uh, things like genetically modified foods, for example. But taxes, Christ knew, would be a massive question. And so he simply says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. In other words, Jesus said, dude, pay your taxes. Right Now, do we as Christians have a right to vote for the politicians we think will spend them a certain way? Absolutely. We shouldn't be wasting people's money. We shouldn't be using it to try to conquer other lands and things like that. But we Christians absolutely have to be the best citizens. And so we have to pay. We have to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Federal Reserve coins the money and, and, and we pay the treasury uh, with that money. I, I think part of the issue becomes, and this is where and you had said earlier that sometimes Republicans will look in the Bible and see what they want to see, and Democrats will look in the Bible and see what they want to see. And one of the things I talk about in my book is America would really be better off if we could get 50% Republican and 50% Democrats in office because 
The Bible basically says, don't trust anybody and don't trust anybody that has a lot of power for a long period of time. <laughs> so I think a lot of people think because of the religious right movement that a lot of pastors would just prefer that every, uh, every, every state house and every national Congress and all presidents always be Republican. And that's not true. Uh, and, and so here's, here's a point. The Bible does say, as far as charity goes, it's really a personal responsibility. And so we have to be careful that as Christians, we don't say, yeah, take money from those people that have more than me and deal with the poor that way. And that way I can spend my money on getting a second car. Uh, but I'll still feel good that the poor are being taken care of. The Bible says, no, 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 that's not going to work. I'm personally responsible for charity. However, there is nothing wrong with the government taking money in taxes to give to the poorest among us, as the Democrats point out. Here's the, here's the one verse that they miss. Paul writes to Timothy, only give charity to those who are what he calls truly widows. And if you read through it, a lot of people are not aware that those verses are in the Bible. Paul says, if a widow's young and she gets remarried or she's running around gossiping instead of taking care of her household, don't just give her money. Don't support because widows aren't perfect. Everybody can go off the rails. Paul says, if someone is able to work but is unwilling to work, then quit giving them charity. Plain and simple. And so I think the Democrats have it right that even though the government's primary responsibility is to constrain evil, our government does need what's called a social safety net. You just hate to see a, a, a woman who's spent time being a great mom and a great wife and who's foregone a career to raise her family. And then the family gets lost in some horrible accident. And then the government just says, well, sorry, you should have gone to college when you were. <laughs> That's just not right. And, and the old people among us and the cognitively challenged among us and, and the physically handicapped among us, they need a social safety net. And, and the Democrats are absolutely right. We must be a caring society. And we need to render unto Caesar when Caesar says, this is how I've decided to take care of those people. But the Republicans are also right that anybody can be incented to go off the rails. And we need to be careful that we give to what the Bible calls truly widows. You have to look it up. It's in the book of Timothy. That the Bible, that we only give to what's called truly widows. And that if someone's willing to work but not, is able to work but not willing, that we simply cut them off. And so I think you're right. We, we, we bifurcate in a way that we don't need to just because we want to argue politically. When in reality, it's probably a mix of the two philosophies that would be biblical. I think the key is the, those people who are able to take care of themselves should take care of themselves. Absolutely. And those people who are truly the true widow. The true widows. Uh, is, that, is it appropriate? I mean, we're not talking about the, the exact definition of a widow. Correct. Is it appropriate for somebody to say, they're just talking about widows? They're just talking about widows. Those, the, a married woman who has lost their husband, that's it. They're talking about widows. They're not talking about the mentally challenged. They're not talking about person who, the physically challenged or whatever their life situation. They're talking about widows. And if they're not a widow, we don't need to be helping. At a minimum, we would have to expand that definition because James tells us in his letter that to be a true Christian, to have religion that God approves of, we have to take care of orphans and widows. Right. And so we'd at least have to expand it there. But this is how I would argue we're to interpret the Bible. There is simply no way 
that in a book, even of 1,300 pages, that God can list out, here's exactly who you take care of and who you don't. Because you know, Vietnam War veterans would have been a weird thing to write in the Bible, right? So this is what God is saying. What's the common theme between, and if you go back and look in the Old Testament, a lot of the prophet writings help us to sort of, to, to sort of glean this information out. Orphans and widows are representative of the category of people who are in a bad situation through no fault of their own. I understand some people are orphans because they kill their parents, but they're in a bad situation through no fault of their own. And all of a sudden, I'm a very old person or I'm a very young person and my primary caregiver is gone. And so anybody I believe who falls into that situation, anybody who's in a bad situation through no fault of their own, Christians have a personal responsibility to take care of. And I do believe our politicians should also vote to spend some tax dollars to take care of those in a bad situation through no fault of their own. And it's okay for a Christian to vote for that politician, regardless of party. Absolutely. That that will follow that biblical principle. Correct. The book is Clear Vision, How the Bible Teaches Us to View the World. Andy Daniel, Ph.D., I cannot wait to dig into this book. This is an important book because it helps us understand how to simplify the message. Can we talk a little bit about your personal faith? Absolutely. You touched on this earlier, and this subject is near and dear to my heart. I came to, I came to faith in a very logical, reasonable process. I had to discover for myself that there was a God, this entity outside of space and time that created everything, outside of, outside of judeo-christian principles just that there was a god and once i once i fell on that position that yeah there's a god there's something outside of space and time that created this once i once i came to that place i found christianity to be the only reasonable representation of god how did you come to believe in jesus christ yeah it's it's pretty similar and i was actually uh raised in a church my parents took me to church when i was young and I enjoyed it in, in a sense, but honestly, always assumed that as I grew and went to school and you know, engaged in PhD programs and so forth, that I would probably drift away. And so I wasn't hostile at all to Christianity or Christians because from the inside I had seen Christians were genuine people who really would selflessly give to others not talk about it in front of a microphone. Not, they literally just selflessly and anonymously would give to others. And so I had tremendous respect for them, except intellectually. So as I sought to, to discount, to rationally discount Christianity, I found I was doing just the opposite. And again, Lee Strobel's story is similar. I think one that's even closer to mine, there's a gentleman named Anthony Flew, and he wrote a book called There Is a God how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. And he was a philosopher at Oxford and places like that, ran the Socratic Society, I think, at the, at the school. Um, and for most of his career, he was a bitter atheist and just railed against Christianity. And he lays out in that book, which is an easy-to-read book. So obviously you should read Clear Vision first. That goes without saying. But after you're done with Clear Vision, I would highly recommend Anthony Flew's book, There Is a God. Um, and, and because if you follow his path, it's very similar to the path that I followed. Uh, and, and, and so it's, it's much like you. There has to be a godlike force out there. Modern science calls it the multiverse. If you're familiar with that phrase, modern science says there's a multiverse which exists outside of our 
dimension outside of our space and time that can violate the rules that govern our universe. And that's where our universe and our biological life came from. The multiverse is eternal. It's infinite. It's outside space and time. God is eternal, infinite, outside space and time. There's just one difference. God gives us a moral structure and the multiverse does not. So ultimately, scientists have come to the exact same conclusion. We can only explain our universe by calling on something outside of our universe. And the philosophers had it right 500, 600 years before Christ. There is a prime mover. There has to be a first mover, a first cause. So once you rationally, logically come to that conclusion, then I think you have to start searching. And that's exactly what I did. Is it Christianity? Yes or no. And the one thing that struck me about Christianity is the God of the Bible requires perfection. He will not compromise. His nature will not allow him to compromise. And I can only be accepted by that God if I am perfect. But that's a God, a God that would accept me if the balance of my life is 51-49. Doesn't seem like a sovereign, almighty being, does it? The Bible is the only literature that can validate itself. Read Daniel, just Daniel's predictions about the kingdoms that would come. Just read Daniel's predictions, right? The Babylonian Empire will be taken over by the Persian Empire, which will be taken over by the Greek Empire, which will then have to be split in four parts when its young leader dies because nobody could run it. And then the Greek Empire will be taken over by the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire will be in charge of the Holy Land when the Messiah is born. Boom, 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 boom. (laughs) Nobody predicts that much, that far in advance with that kind of detail. The book of Daniel alone tells me the Bible is legit. It's real. And then you come to this idea that if there's a God that powerful and that just and that righteous, he's not going to accept imperfections in me. Which leaves me with the difficulty because every other man-made religion, period, in the history of the world, period, requires me to do something to earn God's favor. But if God is perfection, I can never earn his favor. God would have to grant me that perfection. Through grace, he would have to gift me righteousness. And so, yeah, my, my, my journey, well, to some people, it's almost heretical. It's like, why didn't you just have faith? Well, <laughs> because I didn't. <laughs> because my mind doesn't work that way. Right, right. And to be honest, the Bible actually warns us against that. I don't think a lot of people know that the term smooth talker actually comes from the Bible. Paul wrote that, beware of the smooth talkers who want to take advantage of the naive and keep them bound to myths. And if you think about most of human history, most people have been bound to a myth because some smooth talking religious leader has worked on their emotional naivete to keep them bound to that myth. And so actually, I believe being logical and rational is the best way to come to the faith. If, if I come to the faith through a feeling, if I have a stronger feeling tomorrow, I may walk away. If I came to the faith through logic, nothing can now shake my logic in my transformation from being an intermediate churchgoer to being an ordained minister of the gospel. Our faith is definitely has a strong emotional aspect to it. Once you come to that conclusion, though, in, in a very logical, reasonable process outside of emotion, you 
come to understand the gravity of what Christ did for us as God made himself human and suffered the pain that he suffered, you cannot help to become emotional about it. You cannot help but to be affected deeply emotionally about it. And when you realize that he loves that starving child over there as much as he loved you and died on that cross for that starving child, you cannot help be deeply empathetic for that, deeply concerned uh, and deeply emotional about those situations. So those of us who came to faith in a very logical process and talk about faith in a very logical, reasonable way certainly feel deeply about it. I almost think it's a misconception, yes, that because we came to faith through some logical process or because we questioned and questioned and re-questioned. And still may. Yeah, God prove it, God prove it, God prove it, um, that we're not. But you're right. Once you come to terms with that, now my faith is a very emotional it's a very emotional process for me. You're right. As I, as I come to, to grips with how much God loves me and, and this, the fact that he would bother with me and have patience with me and show me mercy. Uh, and I see how God has led me back to him through my life and how God has used other people to influence me. Oh yeah. You, you become convinced that that God is calling you to turn around and do the same thing for other people. There's no question. So I may have came to my faith logically, but yeah, my faith now is a very real emotional thing to me. Absolutely agree. Finally, as we wrap up, Andy, what would you say to that person that is not a believer right now? They're standing right on faith's edge, making that choice to believe or not to believe in God. I would say to them, look at, look at it rationally, look at it logically. It, it is not unchristian or unbiblical to ask the tough questions. And if you ask the tough questions, how do I know the Bible's even real? Well, I had a student in my church ask me, they had taken a world religion class in high school. And they said, Andy, why do you follow the Bible and not the Vedic scriptures of the Hindus? And I said, I have a very clear answer for that. If you've got five minutes, I can sit down and, and explain, which is, of course, one of the first couple of chapters in the book. And so I would say, don't be afraid to ask. It's not unbiblical. And if you hit a Christian or a minister, who tells you it, you just, it just has to be faith, just pray harder, then you need to find somebody else. Amen. There are answers, and you need to ask the tough questions. I promise you there's not an answer or there's not a question that God is afraid of, and there's not a question that God doesn't have an answer for. And so if you're standing on the edge, ask those questions. What is the limit of science? What is the purview of God? I believe if we ask the difficult questions, if we're standing on the edge and we seek to see who God really is, not try to make God who we want him to be, I think everybody who makes an honest excursion in that direction will ultimately come to faith. I'm convinced of it. I don't think we can say anything more than that. The book, again, is Clear Vision, How the Bible Teaches Us to View the World by Andy Daniel, Ph.D. Brother, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Yes, sir. God, God bless you. God, God bless, bless you. Dr. Andy Daniels' website is FCC-M.com slash blog. That's FCC-M.com slash blog. And Clear Vision, How the Bible Teaches Us to View the World, is available on Amazon.com. 
These links, as well as all the other links, can be found in today's show notes at onfaithsedge.com slash 118. That's onfaithsedge.com slash 118. I love bringing you these engaging conversations about faith. If this show entertained you, encouraged you, or informed you in any way whatsoever, will you consider using any Amazon link on this website? We'll get a modest commission from the purchase, but it doesn't cost you a penny more. Well, that'll wrap up today's show. Thank you to Dr. Andy Daniel for being with us, and thank you for listening. You mean a lot to me, and you mean a lot to this show. Remember, God is real, He loves you, and so do I. God bless. Thank you for listening to On Faith's Edge. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher Internet Radio, or your favorite podcast app on Android, Apple, or Windows devices. To reach out to Joe or leave comments about the show, visit onfaithsedge.com. You're important to us, and we would love to hear from you. 